you are. Welcome back to this is episode six of my Mrs. Maisel Pod. This is your host, Kevin Pollack. How have you been? Thank you for writing to us at my Mrs. Maisel Pod at gmail.com. I've read hundreds and hundreds of emails, and many of you have posed questions to our guests, as well as people who've not been on the podcast yet. And that's what I had asked you to do, and you've been wonderful about it. So thank you to all. Before we get to episode six of the pod, which covers season one, episode six, with Nate Cordry. So excited about this to share this with you. We had a lovely chat and a breakdown of the episode, as well as his take on coming in as a guest star. First time we've had a guest star of the series here on the podcast, so it's a very unique perspective. We talk a lot about what that means and how that works, and he's just great. Very candid, wonderfully candid. Shares too much, one could argue, in a courtroom. But after dropping, let's see, we've now dropped three episodes of the pod. The fourth is about to drop as I'm recording this wraparound of the Nate Cordry episode of the pod. And uh, your response has just been wonderful. But of course, now I have to ask even more of you. Those of you who are listening right now and have already done the heavy lifting for me by telling everyone you've ever met. So now we need a rate and review. We need to go however you... Get your podcast and rate and review the show. Apparently, that helps drive listener awareness. And of course, I want to take this opportunity, speaking of which, to thank once again the people at uh, Amazon Music who gave us that upper banner. Oh, after only th- three episodes drop, upper banner. So nearly impossible to get for a brand new show. We're not affiliated with Amazon. I've mentioned this at the end of each episode of the podcast to cover my own legal future. So especially getting this kind of love from Amazon Music was just overwhelming and terrific and exciting as hell. And it should help get the word out. But I need to ask you, you, the faithful listener, to roll up your sleeves, get to work. And, uh, you know, write to us at mymrsmazelpod at gmail.com and let me know. So many of you have reposted my videos on, on the socials, specifically Instagram, and that's greatly appreciated. And I'll be reaching out to you all individually. I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. If you repost and tag me regarding the podcast with a link where people can listen to the podcast, then I will thank you personally by name on this very show. How's that sound for promises that I plan on keeping? (laughs) That I will keep. And I'm excited to invite you, as I did from the outset, to be involved, be a part of and help move forward. All right, so Nate Cordry here, uh, episode six of season one. We break it all down, and as I said, he really shares what it's like to be a guest star coming into a brand new series. The show had not aired when he shot episode six of season one, uh, so nobody knew of its pending massive worldwide success and awards to come from the first season. No idea, working in a vacuum. So he has a very unique perspective about a show that's just finding its way. And uh, I thank him for it. So here now, my conversation, all things Maisel, of season one, episode six of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which I hope you're doing a rewatch on Amazon Prime so you can follow along as we break down scenes and talk about everything. As threatened here now, Nate Cordry. Nate! Kevin! (laughs) (laughs) How are you? Good morning. Yeah, you're in the Los Angeles area, correct? The uh, eastern part of the Los Angeles uh, area. Yes, you've been to my home. I have, and I, we're posting the address, so don't worry about having to get Whoa, it. Well, hold on, hold on a second. <laughs> you know what? No. <laughs> you know what I do? I post the house next door, <laughs> and I don't let people know which side of that you're on. Right, my neighbor Jonathan. Okay, he'd <laughs> yeah. love to greet all the visitors. Someone did hit me 
in LA to if you have the navigation system and hell who doesn't if you want directions to get homes you, you know they have the home option that you can dial up a, a house three or four houses down from yours so that if someone should be driving your car they don't actually have your home address which apparently is something that uh, your valet parkers will collect wow little heads up you're welcome so that's the next level of like the valet key is yes. the first step of mistrust of the valet industry. Yep. Yeah. The second. Wow. Okay. Yeah. In fact, my favorite game to play is call ahead, get the address of the guy who's going to park your car and put that in <laughs> as your home. <laughs> that really freaks them out. Is, uh, is valet, <laughs> is that a thing that still happens today? It hasn't been a thing that I'm familiar with only because uh, at, you, I don't know if you remember this about my Jamie, but her nickname is depression baby. And I am not allowed to spend money. So right. we will get there an hour early so that we can circle and circle until a space right. is found. Good for her and good mm-hmm. for you. Yeah. 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 Because the first one spent it like it was full. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our show. <laughs> so you did have a chance to rewatch episode six of season one. Uh, according to my notes here. And um, how are you in general of watching any of your work? Most actors, so they say, are not comfortable watching themselves. I don't know if you remember this about me. I go the other way. Everything I've ever done plays on a continuous loop on seven different screens throughout my house. Yeah, over your right shoulder here in the Zoom, it's a, a few good men has been just, and just your scenes. You've cut it so it's just your scenes. Thank you. There's no Kathy playing. It's It's weird. This is a... Yeah. Yeah. And I'm so good in this thing that I I like you know. that. I like this. Ver- I like this version better. <laughs> no, I'm in the I'm in the discomfort category, sadly. Um, so is it most of the things you've done you've never ultimately seen or? No, I've I mean, I'll no, I, I'll see it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll watch it like once. There we go. But it only provides discomfort. It only triggers my, uh, you know, and most of us perform for a living, you know, our, our desire to perform comes out of a deep, deep desire to be loved, to be um, for someone to pat you on the head and say, good job. Sure. We love you. Mm-hmm. And so when I watch myself, all I see is my just my round, this floating potato of a head on a child's body uh-huh. and something that like a wig ish thing on the on top i just my insecurities get triggered i can't even yeah watching me, myself perform is um it just unsettles me i was like oh this is it this is what it looks like yeah yeah oh i thought it looked different all of that's true we were looking for ill-fitted wig but you were close yeah 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 <laughs> I'll still get the points for that, right? I got to mark that down. <laughs> you will still get the points. Thank you. Yeah, it is a bizarre thing, the hey, look at me disease, which thank you, Zuckerberg, for proving everyone suffers from because otherwise it wouldn't be a multi, multi-billion dollar industry where you can build a page and then you're someone. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, most hey, look at me sufferers, I feel it is um, craving the attention and the moment we get praised, get away, get away, get away, can't actually discuss why yeah. you thought something I did was enjoyable. Yeah, I've been in therapy for uh, over a decade, mm-hmm. so uh, I've been able to unpack this, but uh, and examine it. But it's never going away. I just have a different relationship with it now. So when that boy shows up in the room and starts like cranking the alarm, I used to go, "Oh God, the house is on fire!" And now he comes in and he cranks the alarm, and I'm like, "I understand why you're here, and I'm glad you're here." 
However, the house isn't on fire. <laughs> so it's a, it's it's sort of like I think about how Russell Crowe slowly becomes to accept his like imagined ghosts in what was that? Was a that beautiful movie? mind. A beautiful mind. Yeah, the Ed Harris character and the the big yeah. tall fella. What's his name? Big tall man. I I'm here for you. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna big go with tall big, man. big tall man. <laughs> Mr. Big Tall Man. Yeah, I, it was. I have to say, I haven't watched it since I watched epi- the first episode, um, whenever the first season aired four years ago, five years ago, and it wasn't uh, a comfortable experience. <laughs> so I blame you. Okay, good, good. Well, any chance I have to uh, <laughs> provide you with a a small bit of discomfort is joyous. Thank you. Uh, do you think that actor also says, you know, there are five levels here? It's um, get me a young big tall man. who's big tall man right yeah yeah probably you should have him on yeah (laughs) ask him yeah yeah his name is paul bettany oh his name is paul fucking bettany my goodness you're talking about vision now yeah from the mcu exactly exactly so wonderful in the television version the wandavision program yeah yeah big tall man It's nice when you can reduce people's careers to something like a funny name. That's what yeah. was one of my favorite things about that game uh, where you put the names in the hat and then you pick one and you have to explain it's a parlor mm-hmm. game. Yeah. Fuck, what's it called? Yeah, that's uh, Scattergories. Sure, no. That's called Scattergories. But, so you read the name and then you, you have to give clues yes. with, without saying and any I part of the name. And then you end up reducing very famous people to it's a babbling stream of water. Yeah, yeah. Trying to get them to say Mel Brooks. Have you ever <laughs> have you ever been dragged into charades is what it's called. Have you ever been dragged into a game Char- of charades at a Hollywood party like with actors? Oh, it's it's the most competitive unfortunate thing that could happen. Yeah. I thankfully <laughs> yeah. it's only happened to me once in my first year in LA when I was still kind of figure out who my friend group was and that happened at one party I was like, "Oh, this isn't my these aren't my people. I got to yeah. keep on looking for new friends." Yeah. So thankfully, I haven't had to suffer through that since. But that is, uh, oh, boy, no, thank you. (laughs) I remember a time, yeah, just yelling intensely at someone in the middle of a game. Yeah. And and stepping back from that moment going, oh, wow, I'm that guy. That's terrific. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You're at some Hollywood party and you're just screaming at Terry Polo to say avalanche. (laughs) It's just it's not happening. She's not getting it. What is the matter with you? It's avalanche. Uh, so charades is the one where you can't talk. So the the name of the game I was looking for was definitely not charades, but it password or uh, it's this name thing. It's just names on a piece of paper. Everyone has to write down ten names on ten pieces of paper, and you oh, put them into a thing. Celebrity, celebrity. We have a winner. No more calls. Pencils down. Uh, it was in fact celebrity. Thank you. Right. So, yeah, so reducing so big, tall man was, in fact, vision. So what was your uh, entree into this Maisel universe? So this was season one, the piloted air. The show is picked up for two seasons from pilot. So you're probably somewhat interested going into the process, I assume. Oh, yeah. My way in was I was thinking about it in preparation for this conversation with you. I had gone through this awful dry spell after the show that you and I met on, mm-hmm. CBS's Mom. Mm-hmm. I had asked off of because they had just sort of stopped using my character and I would go, you know, two months without working. 
and they would call every week and say, Hey man, Hey, it's not, <laughs> you're not, you're not going to be in this week, but you know, we love it. We love the character just doesn't quite fit the storyline where we're going right now, but we're, you know, next week we'll be in touch with you next week. And I said, okay. And that went on for, you know, like a year and the hair, I mean, I take my pills every day, but it's not staying up there forever. And I thought, well, you don't have debt. You don't have a child in private school. You don't, you know, you're not taking care of extended cousins. This is the time to like be working and to be making, you know, challenging things and, and not, you know, take the money and run in that those days, you know, will be a huge part of my future. <laughs> so I asked off and I went without work. I did a play for three months at the Geffen Playhouse out in Westwood. But for television and film, I, I was unemployed for like a year. And it was the longest stretch I had gone. I've been so fucking lucky since I've moved out to Los Angeles. I've been here since 2007, six. And I've been just really lucky. I've been really lucky. And that was a long stretch. And I began to question. I'm like, oh my God, maybe the word is spread that I asked off of the show. And now I'm labeled like a problem or all kinds of, you know, voices or, you know, sure. big tall guys showing up and whispering in my ear. And so I, I have uh, Cindy Tolan to thank. This was the first job that I got after that year-long dry spell. Cindy Tolan, who cast the show. Yeah. I submitted a tape just like, you know, sure. every other guy and got lucky, got lucky. So I was thrilled to be a part of it. I had known of the Paladinos. I didn't know them personally, but I knew their work, of course, and was really excited to be part of a universe that they were creating from whole And do ball. you watch the pilot before the audition or once you get the job or not? No, the show wasn't, it, it, you know, they released the whole season at once, uh, or at least like episode by episode. So this was well before any of it had aired. This was, I don't, I think. Um, well, the way they did their system was they would put the pilot up on Amazon and literally let the viewers weigh in. And that's before they ever made their decisions on whether to pick things up. I'm not sure it's a system that worked. It worked for us. So the pilot was still on Amazon, although technically they might have pulled it uh, once they made the announcement, we're going to make this a series. So you're you're probably right. But yeah, it had been on Amazon for months and months for people to weigh in. But at any rate, you had not seen anything. You just knew of their lore. And uh, the written material was probably impressive, as is their design. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they, you know, people have been talking about them for years. I mean, they're sort of, I knew what they were looking for. Um, right. So I, you know, played the character at the top of his intelligence and moved really, really fast and um, tried to make it as witty and charming as possible and, and uh, make this character as smart as he was on the page. But yeah, I mean, that also like their writing brings a level of, you know, it's not Sorkin, but it's in the same universe, the preciousness with the words and making sure that everything is, you know, it's not it is, it's it's. So make sure you use the, you know, the apostrophe and all that kind of stuff, which I really admire. And I love actually. With a theater background, you know, it exactly. makes sense. Yeah. As exactly a stand-up right. who enjoyed improvising in a lot of films, I found it annoying. And then yep. I found to love the boundaries of it, like a child needs, right? Completely. I like a set of rules because then yes. I can really hammer those rules and be like, you asked me to do 10 things and I did, did all 10 of them. And I know that I delivered on what you wanted. So yes. moving on, right? Moving on. <laughs> no, again, again, let's go again. So, uh, but there's also like an anxiety in any new actor. And I'm sure you felt that in your first day, like going onto that set because the language is so important and they let you know. Well, it was interesting. I wanted to ask you about because 
there aren't many scenes where just one of our characters is by themselves and surrounded by both extras and a guest star and some day players. It's usually several of us interacting and then with maybe a lot of extras and, and guest stars and whatnot. So your scenes with Rachel Rosenhan were, um, there were a couple of other guest stars that were the B. Altman sales gals, one of which parents, I guess, the party was at. But what I found was sort of wonderful was the way, because I was looking for you in the episode as I rewatched it. And I think the first time I see you is the back of your head at the piano, singing with a group of people. And I thought, okay, he's going to make his entrance from there. And I'm waiting. And your character kind of comes out of nowhere with a very strong sense of self and environment as if it had been rehearsed. This room knows that I will improvise at any moment a comedy scene. And I hope my scene partner is up to it because what I actually enjoyed was the lack of preparation within the story that this is just another curveball thrown at our central character. So the doing of it, how was that? It was... um... The actual doing, I'm so curious. I'll answer your question, then I want to respond by asking you a question as a regular and, and a guy who has done it for years. You can lead with the question. Let me ask you this. Yeah. So it's you and Tony and Rachel are in a room, you have a scene, and there's a guest who's in, you know, four scenes in this episode. Mm-hmm. That guest, are you doing a lot of hand holding for that? Guess, I mean, depending on the level of this guest star's experience, um, for me, it was an uncomfortable, I was uncomfortable on set a bit. It was a little, <laughs> I was not, it was not. Um, In terms of being not welcomed into the fold? More? No, not that way. No, no. Um, but just, I knew that the expectations were high. Of your input. The ex- yeah, I mean, the expectations for the part to hit all the words just right. Yeah. And I was also doing a character who's doing an accent and a whole voice and all that shit. So that was on my head. I had to make sure that, that that all lined up. I've been on different sets as a regular and a guest star comes in and, and it's not, and it's fine. And they're, you know, they may be anxious or nervous, but then, you know, they do the job and they go home. And I wonder, is it the same? Do you see more like deer in headlights on their first day when a guest star steps in? Or is it, you know, it's season, you know, 11 now. And so they've got it down. It's, it's, everything is fine. And a guest star comes in and they, everything is clean and comfortable. Very wonderful question. And first of its kind, and also not just for this podcast. I don't know that I've been asked this question in a general sense. I think it being episode five and then six, right? No, six. That your character. Six, yeah. Yeah. That everything was sort of very, very new. And there's a chance we found our footing in terms of our interactions with guest stars. I don't know how you are in terms of if you're the regular on the show. It's very easy to have an instinct to be very, very welcoming. And I feel like that's certainly what our show evolved into. I don't know that everyone of the series regular was out of their own heads enough to be wary and and welcoming. Because what I found in season one certainly was I was scared shitless every time I worked in terms of the pace, the cadence. The only direction I've still ever received from Amy or Dan is pace it up. Yeah. There's never been a character discussion. There's never been a Mm -hmm. 
this is why your character is sad. There's never been a moment of that. In fact, occasionally we'll have a guest director. And the series regulars now, as we're shooting season five, we've really started to notice, did X director say to you, this, this is why you're doing this in this scene? She, she, she said she actually tried to explain why I was doing something in a scene to me. So we're, we're just not used to that. So then in that first season, I also have to imagine, you know, our weekly scripts or whatever would come in like 80 something pages. Now, the show is an hour. It's not a half hour, but still 80, Jesus 85 Christ. pages. Yeah. Good grief. Yep. And all, all of the rewriting is done before we get it. There aren't a lot of rewrites after the table read like all other shows. It's all so little tiny things are changed. So when Rachel gets a script, long story longer. She's got to memorize 75 of those 80 pages. So there's a very good chance when you meet her on episode six and you guys are working together, she is absolutely in her, in her own universe. And I'm not making excuses for her. And I don't know even if your lack of warmth on set was coming from her. No, she was the exact opposite. She was only, she was the dream scenario with a number one in the call sheet. Yes. She was, she's a, a I don't know her. I, you know, I spent two and a half days with her, so I don't, I don't know her at all. But she was so, so warm, so generous and kind and quick yeah. with a laugh and went out of her way, in fact, to make me feel, com- make me feel comfortable in my discomfort being like, Hey, we're, we're all kind of fucking, you know, clawing to like hold on to the fucking back of the truck here. So like you're, you're in good company was sort of her, yeah, was her story to me, but it's, it's interesting. You learn a lot about when you're a regular on a show, you can't, as you said in, in, the, in the text, you kind of like, you know, you drink the Kool-Aid a bit because you're so used to this environment and you don't, you can't really see the, you know, forest through the trees. Yeah. And you learn a lot about your own show when a guest comes on with their perspective. And all of a sudden they're like, what the fuck? And you're like, wait, this isn't normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But my, because it was episode six of season one, they were still figuring out what it was. Uh, They knew what it was, but they were figuring out how to do this. This being one of the most ambitious shows on television. I'm doing air quotes on television. It was all uh, on location, tons of background. Yeah. I think it might have been the first episode that was directed by a guest director. Oh. So that led to a lot of trouble. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Great Broadway director. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I knew Scott from years ago through the theater world. We had met like in 1998 when I was an apprentice at Williamstown. I was 20. and To a magician or a wizard, right? Yes, it was a wizard. It was a warlock. We should clarify what kind of apprentice you were. Yeah, yeah, a warlock. And (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a certain pace. And also, that would have been the first time there was a guest director. So not just a guest director. First time ever. He's come back every season and extremely beloved. Uh, but I wonder, I wonder how much pressure and whatnot he must have felt that first season being the first guest director. He yeah. felt it. Yeah. And he passed down his tension to, uh, he needed to put his tension somewhere. That's right. And he's not putting it on number one in the call sheet. You know what no, I'm saying? No. He's putting it on number 41. <laughs> so the first day I arrived on yeah. set, and Scott is a brilliant director. The first day, I, I'm you know in my clothing and my hair comb, it was the deli scene. 
Okay. That was our first, my first shooting day on the episode. And I hadn't even sat down in my chair before he said, and look, look, your character's not coming back. Like you're not falling in love with her. Okay. So I like, just, just know that. And I was like, it's nice to see Come you. Come on. Too. That is not the first day. First. This is the first, this was within 40. I had not gotten to the chair before he had his hand on my arm saying, now look, you're not coming back. Okay. This is not a romantic thing. You, these two characters are not, you know, you're not going to be her boyfriend or anything. So you just need, just need to know that when you're playing the scene, I was like, do you want to need to know that? Okay. I'm sitting, I'm sitting. I have my pages now. Can you back off? And I'm smiling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Great suggestion. Good to know. Thank you. Thank you. Where do I go? Tell me how to do my job. How does my character ultimately lose his life, Scott? Right. <laughs> I need these holes filled in for me. What What else in the future of my character do I not need to know? I can't imagine the shit that he was getting from the producers who want to control all of it. DGA rules, I'm assuming. They have to have guest directors. So just same like the WGA, like the showrunner can't write every single episode. Other writers need to get credit. And so it was his, the first guest director is going to get fucking destroyed. <laughs> and he was getting destroyed. And they, they left him alone for, you know, maybe half of the day. And then the next day we we're in the apartment scene for the party and they were there and they were hovering and there was a palpable tension. <laughs> between director and producers and then the dp who if i remember his name is eric he was just done uh he had lost all of his patience with scott i remember not laying out it was a big scene there's a lot of characters there's a lot of people so many extras yeah so much and it's a we're not on a stage sound stage there's no comfortable place to go and disappear and like get in the air conditioning Everyone's wearing fucking wool suits and smoking, and it's 150 degrees. The guy playing the piano at the singing scene had collapsed, passed out. No, I'm not fucking kidding. They had to drag him off. And they were like, I guess we're not shooting that anymore. So let's move the camera and get this out of the scene. It was so physically uncomfortable. And I have a Hitler mustache. Look, Kevin, this was a very difficult job. Um, <laughs> you are on the most Jewy Jewington show in history with a Hitler mustache. Yes, yeah. yes, it's true. Well, so what's lovely about this also in terms of perspective, A, it's hilarious and at no one's expense, which I knew it wouldn't be given your heart and soul. But it should be known to those of you listening that a guest director is always in a tough position on any show, on any episode, in any season. Because television is a writer's medium. And like the theater, it is completely run by the writer in every way, shape, or form, final cut and everything. And like the theater, there is a director who works with the actors. And the writer watches what the director does and then uh, has corrections, has has thoughts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a no-win. It's a, yeah. it's a really... It's a really thankless job yes and then Real the other time. aspect you're reminding me of is that first season everything was on location if mostly and we've been on lush 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 sound stages ever since oh you bastard <laughs> so lush in fact that when we finally went back to work for season four in the first covid shooting environment they put us in a much larger sound stage went from like twenty-eight thousand square feet to sixty thousand square feet and they 
our COVID czar, no exaggeration, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and a few others had invented an airflow system that replicated the outdoors so that <laughs> A, we could spend more money on a television show than anyone had attempted in history, but also B through F, at that point, it had become more and more clear that you were safer with this quote unquote airborne virus. If you were outside in the fresh air, you were always going to be safer. And um, anywho, so that first season, everything was locked down on these locations. Every now and then we will do something on a, a practical location. And it's still always uncomfortable and nightmarish. It's never. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you shoot now? What's what stage? We've been at Steiner in Brooklyn. Steiner Studios in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. Yeah. Ever since. And all the apartments have been replicated on soundstage. Even the garment district place where my character worked was replicated on soundstage. The stage deli where you had your first day's yep. work. Yeah, it's all on set. Oh, you lucky bastard. Well, listen, that's what, uh, that's what happens. That's what happens. As you well know, in success, mm -hmm. there's just no amount of money you can't spend. Uh, did I mention there's a carving station at our read-throughs? You know what? This makes me think of the fact that I was uh, forced to be a New York hire for this job. They didn't have enough money to pay for my fucking hotel or my flight. Oh, so enjoy wow. your carving station, <laughs> you fucking bitch. Um, I guess it was season one. And a New all York hire. Into the, you know, yeah, yeah. There, listen, we hadn't won any of our 20 Emmys yet. Oh, and, um, too many. That's too many. <laughs> That's impossible. Yeah, only three of the twenty earned. Uh, if you look at the at the box scores and stats, it's really yeah. three earned Emmys. But yeah, so that first season they were not spending money, and yet, as you pointed out, the show is so lavish and so specific and glorious in its visual. Also, in Eric, he was not our main DP, so you really had everything stacked against you in terms of mm. what would become the creature comforts of the show. Right. And being a New York hire, I, I was sleeping in a bus depot in Flushing. So I had to get myself to the set. You know, I wasn't well rested. Yeah, that's um, not that's not just one bus from Flushing. Oh, please. Three connections. It was so interesting. Just watching. I joke about it, you know, like about being a New York hire and blah, blah, blah. Um, I was very grateful for the job. And it was really, honestly, a thrilling job because of, there was so much being asked of me in those scenes. And, and with my own neuroses of being, you know, first day of school kind of stuff, that which is always part of the actor's gig when you're not a regular. But I was marveling at the background actors. It's such an interesting world. I'm so curious. I'm so curious about like how they get there. Because there's a lot of young people. In the first scene, there was like, there are a lot of young people in the party. And so mostly young background actors are aspiring actors. Older background actors, it's a bit of a different story sometimes. And the woman next to me, who was standing next to me in the next part, the party scene, like the parents' birthday party scene, when we were doing the uh, improvised scene about like looking through the binoculars onto yes. the neighbors, the woman next to me was French. And she just moved to the United States. She married an American She'd been here for like six months and she was bored. And she had nothing to do with the entertainment industry or anything. She was living with her husband and outside of New York. And she thought somehow someone, it came up in conversation like, oh, you know, you can be a background actor on a movie or TV show. And she thought, oh, I'll give that a try. So she just stood there with no, 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 no acting experience, nothing. 
It's like you and I, like them picking us up and placing us in like, the NFL. you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I feel like in this metaphor, I'm Tom Brady. Sure, sure. Uh, she was probably looking at me similarly as I would look at. Uh, now, are you the Tom Brady who's with his family for two weeks and says, yeah, I got to go back to football? Are yeah, you that Tom yeah, Brady? This isn't, this isn't any fun. Um, he's like, yeah, just, I'm just doing this like, you know, because I'm bored. And it was just so, I always thought that background actors were like people who were just like, they'll do fucking anything to get, find their way into yeah. the industry in some way. Sure. Not the case. <laughs> Not the case. <laughs> Not the case with Frenchie LaRue. And it's funny rewatching this episode, watching back, smoking is such a, I've been grateful to not have to smoke on camera many times. I'm not a smoker. And it is such a reveal uh, to the audience that we're playing pretend unless you're a smoker and then it's yes. fine. And then it sort of like enhances the character because it's something you're very comfortable doing. Watching background actors, if you give episode six another pass, if you have a minute and watch some background actors stumble through lighting a cigarette and then attempting to smoke the cigarette it's great theater yeah i mean it's just so fucking great it is so great putting in their ear and their eye <laughs> it's a <laughs> it was a smoky room kevin those rooms were very smoky yes <laughs> yeah in terms of what was being asked of you it is the most challenging and rewarding work i've done i've said it often in terms of mm. of that pace of the length of shots that go on as oneers, the lack of coverage and focus more on the real heart and soul of any scene. And that is very, very challenging. And so I'm always curious how much rehearsal time you were given on the big first improv scene between your character and Rachel's. Because there, there is a lot going on in terms yeah. of background people and whatnot. Yeah. How much of that you remember? Frankly, I don't remember much of the rehearsal, but I do remember it being the camera being Scott had imagined it, I think, one way, but it wasn't like functionally possible to do with the camera. It was like he was still sort of in the theater. It was like, go over there and then go over here and then we'll go this way. And the and DP was like, that's we can't do that. That doesn't work. So there was some like gentle butting of heads over that. But I don't think much of ours was, uh, I think like her entrance into the scene was a one or. And then it sort of fell apart after we started our thing. Then they, they went into coverage after that, but they covered the hell out of it. Uh, there's, there was a lot of coverage, but the rehearsal, I don't remember a ton of rehearsal. Yeah. Well, you were right about still finding the way to do the show because we definitely morphed shortly thereafter into a lot more rehearsal and a lot less coverage for sure. Uh, In fact, great. that shot of the two of you side by side doing the scene was what I had thought might've been a longer take. I don't think so. I, I mean, I don't remember, but I remember not freaking out about, I mean, I love winners are the best I, it, because yeah, it's challenging and really difficult, but it's also when it works, it's you're doing a play yeah, and it's really fun to like walk on that tightrope and juggle and balance something on your head and do all and then get off and the camera moves past you and you're like, fuck, yes, I fucking, I, I did exactly what I needed to do. Yeah. That's really fun and really thrilling. a lot more fun to do than to do, you know, dozens of setups and tons and tons of coverage, which after a while you just get beat down and, you know, defeated in a way I mean, that tends to happen to me. You know, when the letter on the, um, on the marker, when it gets up to like J or K, you know, yeah. like, Oh, well, this is tough. <laughs> Usually wanted to go to like D and then mm -hmm. you were great. That'd be great. 
Yeah. Let's do four or five setups and get out of here. Yeah. But yeah, I don't remember much about the rehearsal, but I remember there being a tension between Scott and the DP about what he wanted to do and what the camera could do. Yeah. Because again, it's not a soundstage. So there's we can't move any of these walls. This is just an Upper West Side apartment on Riverside and whatever, 85th, you know, some pre-war building. And you just got to, you know, there's a lot of challenges that come with that, as you know. Yeah. And they were feeling it. And it was 100 degrees. So uh, tensions were were high. Let's talk about a couple of the scenes, if you don't mind, because the opening scene of the episode is that apartment and that party. So this is that that first thing. And I tell you, I really did especially love the lack of exposition, which I'm never a fan of. Mm. I like the feeling of being an audience member going, what the fuck is happening? Yeah. Where, Where your character just steps in, starts talking to Midge, and Midge just jumps in. Yeah. It was a real, another challenge that we're on episode six as we're watching the first season that our uh, lead character, in terms of her comedy chops, this is all new. And that was one of the mm. uh, sort of uh, fun things for the audience. And the absolute ease and comfort of your character to not only jump in with this particular <laughs> character, a young Adolf. Mm-hmm. Trying to assimilate in New York was that the uh... yeah yeah he was he was like undercover but he wasn't undercover basically <laughs> right. the joke so clearly not a young Adolf I said correct on that but not a lot of backstory just I'm doing Hitler how are you exactly yeah <laughs> yeah just walking in very yeah. very confident in this bit yeah with the penciled in mustache which we didn't even see him apply yeah so how long was he how long was that on. <laughs> Did he walk into the party with that? I don't think he was standing at the piano where I saw the back of your head with it on. He was not. I remember I had to like act. And this wasn't, this didn't make it into the episode, but I like, at some point I turn around to sort of like yep. quickly apply it and then and then walk into the scene, goose stepping. Yes. Yeah. And they, they probably got to post and editing and said, do we need the, uh, the the few seconds of him putting it on? No, I think the goose step kind of sells it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that does the heavy lifting for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember being so, another reason, another great place for me to place my anxiety was doing this accent. I'm terrible with accents. The real weak, I can't sing. I can't dance. And I'm bad with accents, unless it's a Boston accent, but that's just me doing myself. Sure. So even though it was a sort of like cartoonish, over the top, you know, German accent, even even if it was not supposed to be, you know, spot on, it was supposed to be kind of shitty. I had so much fucking anxiety about, you know, being found out. Like, oh my god, he can't do it. He can't do the accent. It's it's cartoonish. <laughs> we got to find someone else. All those are real thoughts that are dancing in my head the night before when I'm trying to when I'm taking sleeping pills, trying to force myself to sleep. <laughs> There's always a few keys that open a door so you know when it comes to any accent. There's always ways mathematically. For example, I'll teach you a flawless Michael Caine. Most people learn to do an impression of him by saying his name. And the key there is say the word my. This is my hand. So say the word my. My. And then say the word cocaine, the drug that you inject. (laughs) Say those two words. Michael Caine. My cocaine. So there's always a key like that. Yeah. I had to learn Jason Statham. I was had a book out. I was following him on the morning talk shows. And invariably, the host of hostess would say, do you do Jason Statham? He was just here. 
And so then, you know, after three of those, I'm the asshole. So I have to right. teach myself how to do it. And I, for the key there was he says six words in a row faster than any human being on the planet. And if you say those six words in a row, the way he does, do you know what I mean? Which he says as domain. Yeah. So he's reduced six words to two syllables. And you yeah. say the, a man's name, Joe, and then the word mean, as in I mean it, domain. Domain. If I put you in that chair, you'd be dead in 30 seconds. Show me. Oh, that's really good, Kevin. Well, it's stupid. But uh, just to the accent thing, because it is a weird thing where I have an ear for accents and, and impressions, but also tone deaf. Can't sing. You can't sing? I'm surprised by that. Really? I, I mean, I'm replicating sounds. How is? I think it comes from an utter lack of confidence. I think the singing thing and oh, yeah. the people enjoying karaoke the most are the fearless ones. And maybe- yes. Yes. Maybe, maybe the booze remove their fears. Yeah, gin helps, but you're right. That's why I, I fucking hate karaoke. And I, other friends of mine, it's their <laughs> favorite thing. And it is my least favorite thing. There's yeah. nothing I would rather not do than go to Koreatown and, you know, and do a bunch of, you know, yep. unless it's Boston's more than a feeling, which I, I'm down. I, I'll sing that one. I'll sing that one. Because <laughs> there's no turning back. There's no half-assing no. it. No. Gotta go. Just gotta go. Big, big swing. Is it because Boston's in the name of the band? Probably. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Uh, yeah their, their whole catalog, I'm very, very comfortable <laughs> doing. Brad Delp, rest, may he rest in peace, was the oh. lead singer of Boston. Yeah. There you go. And now we finally got to it. We got to the question that people wanted answered. I have Who it written down. It? Will we get down to that guy? Yeah. yeah. Let's skip that other shit and just get right to the meat and potatoes. Who was the lead singer <laughs> of Boston? And has he, in fact, died? You answered both he of has. those questions. Yep, sure has. The next scene, we are at B. Altman, and uh, I enjoy being a girl is playing. And that's where it's sort of the exposition that gets us back to one of those parties. As the Vivian character stops by Midge's counter and in a panic says, her parents have an anniversary party. And right. we're starting to build a world where Midge is excited about performing at these parties, which was such such a unique turn. And apparently it was a thing. Apparently, party performers, while there wasn't a lot of money to be made until, I don't know, how popular does a party performer have to become before they're earning a, a real buck? I didn't. Did you sense that your character was there was an exchange of currency? I think I, yeah, I, I mean, I assumed he has, he talks about at the end of the first scene when he's, uh, when he's doing the, the Adolf Hitler impression, he says like, uh, yeah, the comedy career is going okay. You know, I have a man, I have an agent, I've done a little TV, you know, I've made some money. Right. But, and you even mentioned, I have to leave, I'm going to do a set. But I felt right. this is a stand up who's doing well, who also likes to improvise. Yeah. And then when you guys meet up the stage deli, yes. Uh, she meets the agent and um, or the representation. And there is a sense of as a team, as a duo, there's definitely money to be made. But I'm wondering specifically, are there any checks being written for the party performances? I would assume. I would assume. I, I don't think he's. I mean, do you think there like a guy like him would be doing it just to sort of work out new material? Possibly. Like, as a, kind of a safe-ish place to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Because my stand-up act and their after career began making my friends laugh at parties. Right. Yeah. No one asked me to come to their party and perform because of it. I just 
whenever we gathered, you know, that sort of thing. So I, I just, I thought, is this a part of the period that these mm-hmm. things were happening? I assumed he was making a little scratch from it, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that, that answer. Yeah. I think one of the Paladinos would know. Yep. And then we, of course, we have the Weissman apartment where Abe is discussing the Bell Labs thing, which Tony Shalhoub, I cannot get enough. Yeah. How lucky are you? Did you know him before you did this job? We didn't. And we realized it was and sort of laughed at the realization of, you know, we're in a small group of get one of these guys for the thing. Yeah, right. (laughs) It's it's him or me or, you know, Oliver Platt or Stanley Tucci or, you know, this this group. We all have those, right? I'm sure you have, even if it's imagined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did yeah. you find yourself up against, because we also create a, there's a competition in our minds because we might see similar people at an audition initially. And yeah, then it's strange. It's, it's yes. Colin Hanks, maybe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Colin, uh, Justin Long is sure. probably in the same universe. Yeah. So he is, um, he's perpetually looks like he's, he's so young. He says like, I don't know what his moisturizing routine is, but it's working. I'm trying to think of the other. Well, it's so weird now because there's no more, I don't see anyone, there's no uh, waiting room for auditions anymore. Right. But a lot of comedy guys as well, like there's a guy who's taken like three jobs from me and I don't know his name. And if you can give me 30 seconds. Oh, please look it up. I'm going to look him up right now. He's a wonderful actor. He beat me out for this part in Mank. He beat me out for a part in, his name is Joseph Cross. And he, we look a lot like each other. <laughs> His name is Joseph Cross. And he was in, yeah, he was in Milk. He was in Lincoln. He was in Running oh, with so Scissors. Not just the M movies, Mankin. No, no. Big Little Lies. He was just in uh, Licorice Pizza. The What's boy his name again? His name is Joseph Cross. Okay. And he's a fucking great, he's a great actor. Great actor. They go to him first. And if he's not available, <laughs> they go to Cordry. Yeah, Third Watch. He booked an episode of a couple episodes on Third Watch in 2003 that I remember working on and auditioning and not getting. Do you remember Third Watch? Kevin, you a Third Watch fan? Uh, I can't say I was a fan. I remember hearing of it. Yeah, a forgotten piece of the Dick Wolf Empire, Third Watch. Yeah, I mean, I always remember wondering what went so well on the first and second watch that there needed to be a Third Watch. <laughs> Well, the first watch, like they let a couple guys through. Second watch, the security is a little bit tighter. But every so often, someone's going to sneak through. You need that third line of defense. Damn straight. Third watch, maybe. You call it third watch. Those are the guys who really lock it in, you know? (laughs) No one's getting through the third watch. No, it's the last line of defense. (laughs) (laughs) That's at the pitch meeting. How else would you describe the third watch? The last line of defense. Well, let me talk you through it. My favorite parlor game is pitch me Hogan's Heroes. Come on. (laughs) Concentration camp. The show's setting? But for, I've actually never seen a full episode of (laughs) Hogan's Heroes. Right. So it was a comedy. Right. That was always the part of the pitch that made me the most curious. Is it an internment? What kind of camp are these Americans in? I can promise you that no one during the pitch nor any of the scripts were the words concentration camp used. The word camp. That's a big promise. Was often used. Everyone said camp. We got to get in the camp. We got to get out of the camp. Is everyone at the camp? That sounds fun. Sounds like something (laughs) you send the kids to in summer. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I just see them pushing really hard during the pitch. No, 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 but the but the Nazis are idiots. Right. They're so stupid. Yeah. And yeah. that's the fun of the show. Right. Sorry, wait. I'll make it. That's the fun? <laughs> we just Okay. <laughs> I did an impression of three of the Nazis on that show. Three. Wow. Holy. There was a Colonel Klink. Sure. And there was a General Bullcarker. Clink, you idiot. Wow. That was a flawless General Bullcarker, I, I assure you. Very good. And then everyone did Schultz. Um, I like this seat at the Gaslight, and I'm wondering your take on that, because the Gaslight was one of those sets that really tapped into the entire world to me. You know, yeah, we were doing that first season there, and I was only brought in episode two when they realized after the pilot, oh, shit, we don't have in-laws. But for that first season, there was, as Tony Shalhoub actually said it, I, I don't think anyone outside the Upper West Side Jews are going to watch this show, just so you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the, the gaslight then dials us right into the backdrop of this world and this launching pad and this universe that took place in this little tiny microcosm of what was later called show business. And so all the early scenes there, I just loved so much. Yeah, I'm a big uh, Bob Dylan guy. And so I know a little bit just about, you know, I'm just watching all of the documentaries. Yeah. Still look back, of course. And then, um, and Scorsese's one, which was, which was fucking great. Mm. No Direction Home. It's a two-parter, but the first part of it, almost in, is entirely set at the gaslight in the West Village and, and that universe and all of those troubadours and that whole kind of world and him sort of dropping into this world. And so I, that world is um, fascinated by it. It was like things were, yeah. it was like ground zero for where the culture began to change. It was like in that room, basically yes. like changed so much of American culture in a way. Right. And the White Horse Tavern and, you know, like Dylan Thomas, that whole world like is just so rich and compelling so it was very smart of the paladinos to like to get there to show the audience that world and to take them out of the beautiful apartment the upper west side and the dresses and the and the glamour and there's so much glamour in that in that world even though this family is sort of fighting and sniping at each other and shit is going down it's still moneyed and glamorous and polished and so to take the audience out of that world and put them in the gaslight was you want to like what's the furthest thing from that apartment in the upper, upper west side right you know the bathroom of the gaslight right so it was smart of them to like pull that tension pull up that those axes really far apart from each other well said indeed yeah and also i know when early maybe episode one definitely episode one or two and a but we see him teaching at columbia oh. yeah in that one of those fucking actual classroom. classroom. With the I mean, chalkboards that are the size of a house. I made a note of it. I was like, I don't know how much it cost because you're not building that. Nope. And then also, you know, him, the exit, him exiting and being on the campus because the shot shows the, the granite, you know, I think it just says mathematics. Yes. And the camera does one move. It was smart. They, did, they just pivoted. The camera backed up and sort of went to the right and showed another entrance to another building. And so it was only about 100 feet of extras that they needed. Right. They didn't need any cars. They didn't need any other infrastructure. But that piece of Columbia, I'm assuming that is. I'm trying to remember if they shot at Sarah Lawrence or actually at Columbia. Mm, mm. Yeah. That classroom is, uh, didn't stick with the show after season one. Do they go back to that set a lot? I hope they do. The classroom set. 
I don't know about a lot. Definitely they did and they had some fun with it and they had a great deal of, uh, you know, it's Abe's world. And one of the things about the show that you, of course, are missing is um, (laughs) the Valentinos do a very good job of pushing everything forward. There is progress. There is evolution in each of the Mm. characters' lives and worlds. So he, spoiler alert, moves on. But they do spend some other great stuff with him and the school. Yeah. The locations in this episode are all kind of startling. You know, Mm -hmm. the little um, fortune teller scene with Rose and the fortune teller. And then this restaurant scene at uh, Ruby Foo's. Yeah. I think there's still a Ruby Foo's. In Times Square, but the one that's used here would be the 1959 or 58 version of Ruby Foo's. And just the absolute pureness of that. <laughs> Jews having Chinese. I mean, it was yeah, just, oh my yeah. God. Oh my God. Yeah, and you the, marvel just the ambition, the, the ambition of these. It must be so freeing um, for the Paladinas to sit down and write an episode and not really have a care about <laughs> where these scenes need to be. Oh, yeah. That they'll get it and they'll make it happen. They will create this universe. And when they do actually shoot the scene, they'll do it in one take. <laughs> How wonderful. But yeah, this episode is its just like, oh, my God, where, where else are we going? Yeah. Holy shit. How much did that cost? Good. And the, also the, the decision when the Miriam character sees her ex-husband, Joel, at a different table within Ruby Foods of all the restaurants in all the world. And the way that the family decides to pick up and leave and the exit there. You know, the food, it looks like it had just been delivered, of course. Everyone's starving. And Abe's exit line is, everyone who has a pocket, grab a roll. (laughs) That's great. Great. There's a lot of good food comedy in this episode because Alex, boy, she just remarkable. Oh, my God. Oh, when she goes to town with the lobster at one of the parties. Oh, that whole scene, that whole bit. Oh, my God. Is that funny? Oh, my God. She comes in. And the friend says, you know, come into the party, come, uh, you know, uh, take your coat off and look at, you know, meet some people and check it out. And she goes, I think I got it. Yeah. <laughs> She's fine until she sees that buffet. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, just all oh, that whole scene. She was, oh, she's so fucking good. She is just a master. She's like, she is next, next level. level stuff. Yeah, yeah, she really is. But also the wherewithal of, uh, from a writer's perspective, knowing that is the perfect way to get her into the room. You know, you've got this set, you've got yeah. this scene, you've got it, you want to introduce the Susie character and so she can witness her only client wasting time. But yeah. how do we get her into the room? Right. And the idea that she lives in a hubble and oh food. And then not just food, the biggest four pound lobsters in New York. Yeah. So great. Are waiting for her and her the physical bit of her picking it up with tongs and smashing on the plate just as she ends her line ah, nah, 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 boom, and pulling out and just oh man it's so fun so yeah. fun she destroyed that sand she's so great yeah astra is trying to interest ethan back at the weissman apartment in rabbi trading cards and astrid do you know justine yes yeah, we worked on a show called Harry's Law, which was this Kathy Bates oh, yeah. NBC courtroom drama. Right. And we were on that together. That was like her first job out of Juilliard or something. Oh, wow. Yeah, was- she so incredible as the ultimate shiksa on the show. Yeah, yeah. So funny. So good. And she's introduced in this scene and she's talking about, you know, they establish her character, someone who 
who ultimately becomes more Jewish than all the Weissmans and Maisels. But she has this line, Jamie, our wonderful producer and research goddess, wrote, uh, Astrid taking the accelerated Jewish conversion classes, quote, goy to Jew in three weeks or less. Great. <laughs> I mean, great. It's so good. Great, great, great. Yeah. Yeah. And the wonderful scene with Midge and her brother out on the fire escape, smoking a butt and talking about Joel and, and, uh, but yeah. also him coming back in and seeing the comedy albums and just a little dropping a little gem. You were always the funny one. You've always been the funny one to yeah. Midge. You know, that thing about someone that was for me one of the interesting things about the pilot and the trajectory of this woman who falls ass backwards into a career or determination is how do you balance the organic nature of that? How do you keep that real? And so it was always important to me that it be crystal clear that she was just the funny one. And in your scenes at the party, not only does your character Randall challenge her with no net to jump into this improvisation, but also just her appearing at this party with a small gathering and just shooting the shit, doing observational humor, mm -hmm. not in a jokey way, necessarily. There might mm -hmm. be a few punchlines dropped in, but there's nothing sort of classic joke writing about it, which is the other thing that kind of interests me and kept me in. So when it, whenever a little gem like Goy to Jew in three weeks or less is dropped into the show, it, it makes me... Uh, it makes you what? Very happy. It's a testament also to Rachel's greatness that, I mean, talk about a fucking burden that she has to be, this character has to be so many things. Ugh. And she is told that uh, the other characters over and over tell us that she is hilarious. And then she has to fucking prove it to us, the audience. Because if she can't pull that stuff off, it's all over. The show collapses. And she has, she is like, you know, Atlas. She holds all of it. And she pulls all of it off effortlessly. And also, like you said before, with, I don't know how many days it takes to shoot an episode, probably, what, 15 at least? We're up to that now. We weren't there. Yeah. But she has maybe half a day off. Yes. The burden on her is just so, is so incredible. And to see an actor pull it off, one, and then to pull it off, and again, I do not know her. We spent two and a half days together. But to pull it off with grace and kindness and warmth is a testament to her just as a human. But you had mentioned that scene when they come to the brother and sister come back yeah. from the fire escape. And he says, yeah, you're always the funny one. But the Palandinos are never going to end the scene on that. They're never going to end the scene on that like moment of sincerity. They're not interested in that. We're going to move right on to you hear the baby crying and they say, oh, she kissed the baby. And that's how the scene ends. And it made the camera may linger on Midge to sort of like, appreciate like to you know hear that lovely compliment from her brother but we're not going to end on you're always the funny one you know we have to sort of undercut that earnestness with a joke which the audience loves the audience wants that you know the audience desires that tension to be cut yeah yeah and also the first time rachel's a lead in a show and i can report here shooting season five that generosity both as a human being and fellow scene partner has not wavered or evolved negatively. It just gets stronger and stronger. And it is her instinct to look out for others and care for others constantly. She has more patience with the children in the scenes than anyone. It's such a tough thing. Yeah. Uh, lucky you. Lucky you. You know. Well, there are no assholes 
at all, which is, you're not wrong. It is pure luck. It is yeah. alchemy that you can wish for. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Count on it not being the case. There's some people who like go by this, you know, Hollywood, like no assholes rule when they're mm-hmm. like creating a show and show running. My brother was doing um, Children's Hospital had this sort of no asshole rule, but it's, it's really hard. It's really, really hard to do that. And You're going to limit your opportunities. It. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're sort of working with one hand tied behind your back. But when it was showrunners and creators pull that off and build an environment like that, you know, and Harry's Law was like that. It was Bill D'Elia who ran the show. Who, of course. Yeah. It was David E. Kelly, but Bill D'Elia who had run, you know, Alan McBeal and all these other David Kelly shows. He had done it for decades. And so he he knew. He knew how to do it. He knew how to manage it. He knew how to keep everyone happy. He knew how to, how to keep it a welcoming set. and. And I loved going to that job. It was like, there was no nonsense. There was no extracurricular drama. When the sh- day ended and I walked to my car, the day ended. It was like, I worked at a bank. It was like, the day's over. And now I'm going home and I'm going to live my life. And I'm working my lines for the next day. But I didn't like get in the car feeling like, oh no, did I, oh boy, you know, like that, did I upset that person? Or geez, that person was miserable today. And oh, that DP is pissed or the camera operator, whatever, Yeah, which can quickly happen on any show. So when it goes well and it's humming and people are kind, oh man, it's, that's the dream. Yeah. I mean, that's why I welcome your unique perspective and experience in the early going with a guest director and a guest DP in a practical set, uh, the center of the earth heat wise, mm-hmm. because all these years later, it has been that environment that you just described, where people are extraordinarily happy to go to work. Even when they announced this is our fifth and final season, and Amy Sherman Paladino from the beginning had said, in success, this really is, guys, so you know, a five-season arc in my creative mind. Yeah. So the fifth and final season, while being bittersweet, it's only bitter because of how extraordinarily enjoyable the job ultimately has been. And that might be the luckiest part of the experience. I'm so happy for you, Kevin. That truly, these things don't happen often. Never, never. Yeah, it's really rare. It's yeah. really, really rare. I mean, I've been around a long time. The first job, we had just invented fire and that's all the DP had to light with. It's... Now that's not true. <laughs> I think you look great. You look 41. You look 41. Right. How do I look? But I read at a 67-year-old level. Right. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> Where do you stay when you shoot? Do you stay in Brooklyn or do you stay in Manhattan? I am the lucky fool who has two different friends who keep apartments there but don't live there. Oh, yeah. And so I get to schnorr, great Jew word, in their apartment. Yeah. So I'm, I am I had a third, actually, the first four seasons and now unfortunately it's only two. you had a falling out with that person uh, well they finally sold this incredible tribeca place which really mm-hmm. was uh, but but it, it's just again part of this ridiculous lucky crazy what are you talking about carving station is just step one of the ridiculousness yeah and a level of gratitude and appreciation that has carried us and when we'll come back from a hiatus and we'll go to those Taborees, which are like a wedding with set deck and I mean truly production happening that is just for the read. So all these blown up photos of what the Tonight Show or whatever the thing might be in 1961, just for the table read, huh? Wow. 
Yeah. So yeah, it's been beyond unicorn time. Well, it's I'm I'm extra surprised by that because your parent company is, has been struggling for years, you know, to pay the bills. <laughs> so I don't know where the money comes from. Um, selling shower curtains, uh, shower curtains, not books. Yeah, it's not books anymore. It started books. Do you like your hammers in a day? If you want your hammers delivered in one day to your home, you can watch our show for free. I have an idea for a business. (laughs) It's called Hammer Today. Um, (laughs) I think we can only get away with Hammer tomorrow, Cliff. I don't know that we can do Hammer Today. Let me talk this out with you. (laughs) (laughs) Hammer is perfect. Hammer is the funniest version. I started, I'm trying to find the other item that would be funnier, but hammers, you know. <laughs> because uh, also, really hammers is horrible, be- it's hilarious because it's kind of a one-time purchase. You don't, the hammer doesn't go bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, not a lot of repeat business for the hammer. No, no, no. But yeah, somebody once just raised their little hand during a meeting of marketing and said, you know, we're spending half a billion annually on marketing. Why don't we make some content with some of this hundreds of millions of dollars? And it'll just be enticement. I mean, I I don't know. The strange business. Uh, Yeah. The strange business. Apple is so it's, uh, I'm going off in the left field here, but the the Apple television network, it's so, so strange. It's, it's, it's a, I mean, it seems like it's just a kind of like a tax write-off basically. Uh, I mean, they're making content the goal is not to fuck up the phone business and the computer business, right? Like, why are you getting into the art business where you're only going to alienate art is about, you know, yep. people, you're going to piss people off. So yeah. why risk? Why? Like they think, but it's why, you know, it's like the shows that they're creating, like have to fit a certain mold. I feel like that's not going to fuck up the computer and the phone business. It's so yeah. strange. It's so strange. How bored do you have to be in success that the idea of creating a platform where you're right will cost a billion dollars quickly and to what? And our logo is seen by more people, whether they like it or not. Right. Kind of thing. I mean, I- Look, NBC and CBS and ABC had the same burden in a way because they're just trying, you know, back in the day, they were trying to sell, you know, stoves and dish soap and brill cream, whatever the, you know, coffee, whatever the fuck. So, you you know, your burden is always to, you know, the scripted television is just a, a thing to sell product. It's really mm-hmm. all, you know, and, and, and the first time you go to the upfronts is when you really realize that, oh, you are just white noise between Mercedes ads and Burger King ads. Yeah. So I'm not I'm not naive enough to, you know, it's always been a business, but it's it's so interesting. Amazon and uh, and, and Apple and and um I'm going for PayPal. I'm hoping the PayPal network is where I want to get my stuff on. I like that's I, I love that somehow DirecTV or AT&T or whatever the mothership is just yeah, launches or something. Yeah. yeah. Their new Spectrum TV series starring yep. actual people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that used to be sort of the local. Like the regional. Yeah. The regional network. The. Uh, yeah. What was it in San Francisco? It was W what? Or was K something? K yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. But I even mean the um, what's her name? Bird that showed up in the late night access. Television. Yeah, uh, um, yeah. Local access. Local access. What was her name? Yeah. 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 Susan Bird. Something Bird. No. But yes, I know. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. 
she it was like her, she had a talk show in uh, Robin Bird. That's right. Thank you, Ken. She had like her show in like hot tubs and stuff. Yeah, but she would interview. We're watching yeah. the um, Andy Warhol Diaries as a documentary, and he mm. for a while also tapped into local access and had his own Bizarro World talk show and not talk show, but kind of an offshoot from the interview. Yeah. He sort of predicted reality television, didn't well, he? Well, man, he did he. He predicted everything, basically. Nobody listened when he said, "No, everyone will be famous for 50 minutes, but more importantly, would want to be. That was the part that no one paid attention yeah. to. You know? Yeah. yeah. Oh, shit. Really? Everyone wants that. So. Well, listen, I've taken up too much of your time. I insist that you go back to your protected cove. Thank you. Thanks for spending this time with us, but also for making sure within the frame there was evidence of an outdoors in your life? Yeah. Is that not common? The other guests aren't showing that they have a window in their house? No. I, 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 not every house has a window. And so no. I kind of want to show it off. You know, Most people are in New York. So I like the California out the window. Oh, yeah. Right. I right. like it California out the window a lot. Yeah. Because I don't see another building. Yeah. It's just my neighbor, Simon. Just my neighbor, Simon. I can hear him all the time because our houses are very close together. And I, I hear him shouting. Can you email induce Simon and I? I'd like to get. I his can do that for you. Perspective. I'm, I'd be happy to. You probably met him at the Christmas party, in fact. Oh, oh good. <laughs> That's right. Last time I saw you, I also saw Simon. <laughs> <laughs> and Chris McDonald. Oh, uh, did you see Chris? You probably saw Chris there. Yeah, I actually saw him in New York for dinner uh, when I was invited to a dinner orchestrated by Richard Kind. Do you oh, know Chris McDonald? He's gonna be best. at the dinner. Do you wanna? The best was oh, was God. Weber there? Was Stephen Weber? There? He wasn't in town, but he would have fit oh, right in. Yeah, sure. they're old pals. Those guys. Yeah, yeah, all yeah. the best, the best. It's great to see you, Kevin. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, pal. And um, let's just zoom again soon. Let's just leave. <laughs> <it down. laughs> let's not commit to a gathering for food or time. Absolutely not. Yeah. Let's just let's 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 throw in a casual commitment to another Zoom. Baby steps. <laughs> Baby steps. It's great to see you, truly, man. It's been a lot of years, and I thought of you guys often, you and Jamie, and I'm glad that you're well. It's really nice to see your face. Yeah. Truly. Same. Same all the way. Yeah. How about that as an insider's view on so many aspects of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but also doing a television show, what it means to be a part of that universe, not just from a guest star's perspective, but from a character actor's perspective, coming in just to be in one episode as a show is up and running and production-wise, but has yet to air anything other than the pilot. Sure, we had the confidence of being picked up to two seasons from just the pilot, which was a bit historical. There was very little precedent for that, which gave us confidence, I guess. But until you all had a chance to see the show and really weigh in on the series, man, oh man, did we not know, have any clue, if anyone would ever actually watch the damn thing, let alone the world. So uh, I thank Nate Cordry for sharing and oversharing all that he could and would. Bless his insecure soul and heart. He's such a sweet, sweet man. And is the first to admit of his insecurities and did wonderfully in our conversation. All right, let's get to some of your email questions. Yes, write to us at mymrsmaislepot at gmail.com. Let's throw it to the mailbag now. Today's email comes from Colleen for Marin Hinkle. Love this question that she wrote into mymrsmaislepot at gmail.com. Don't forget to send yours. Here's Colleen's. Hi, Kevin. My name is Colleen, 
and I live in Nashville, Tennessee, although I was born and raised a New Yorker. I just wanted to drop you a quick note to thank you for creating the My Mrs. Maisel podcast. Much like everyone else, I was devastated to hear the news that The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel was ending. Over the years, it has become one of my favorite comfort shows and an absolute staple in my house. My mom and I always looked forward to watching new episodes together and would compare each other to different characters. She says I am a Rose and I think she is a Zelda. I am so grateful for the memories we have created and we will continue to rewatch the series together. Now, we look forward to listening to the podcast each week. I have a question for Marin. I recently watched an interview that she did. She explained that she loved the comedic relief Rose's character brought since she tends to be a bit more serious in real life. I would love to know what she learned from Rose and if there's anything she will take away from the character moving forward. What a great question, Colleen. And now here's Marin's reply. I really love this question. Um, I think I'm an experiential learner. And so when I, I do get to play characters, and particularly someone like Rose, who I got to play for six years, I, I really try and challenge myself to walk away from the experience and take a little something deep in my life, hopefully, um, shift the way I, I guess I walk through the world. So let's see. Anybody that knows me would agree that Rose is much bolder than I am. She lives life large. She says what's on her mind. She's sassy. She walks into rooms with a kind of longing to be noticed. And um, I'm not so much like that, but I'm trying to do more of that. You know, as a woman in my 50s now, I do ask myself, if not now, then when? You know, I'm I'm not really as interested in apologizing for myself and my choices. I want to really have a sense of security and strength like she has. Her matchmaking business, she does despite being bullied and threatened. She's on this quest for a midlife rediscovery of self. You know, she wants financial security. She wants to feel valued and respected. And she really loves working. And well, I do too. I love acting. I love it. I just am so lucky, I think, to be an actor. And I do hope, like she does, that my life um, choice will help people, you know, ultimately maybe laugh a little more, cry, or simply connect to something within themselves. I love, Colleen, that you said it. this connects you to your mom. I That makes me so happy. <laughs> Finally, the obvious thing that Rose has is this incredible elegance and style. And that team of artists that worked with me, the makeup, the hair, the wardrobe, the costume design, and of course, Amy and Dan, well, they created this extraordinary, amazingly artistic creature. And I can't do that myself. I never will be able to, but I'm occasionally trying to buy a little something that makes me feel like her. Like when I wear it, I feel a little larger than life. And like I have a little extra fun walking into a room. So that's what I take from Rose. I hope and God, I miss her really terribly. And I know I always will. Let's close up the old fat mailbag. Oh, buddy boy. Thank you again for those of you that are writing in to my Mrs. Maisapod at gmail.com. I uh, look forward to hearing from more of you, please. Can't get enough. Anyone who ever worked on the show and continue watching, rewatch the uh, next episode, season one, episode seven of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime. Yes, indeedy. And I also mentioned there are prizes. 
that are coming your way. Those of you who have your emails read on this podcast, you are entered into the opportunity, as I'm calling it, to win valuable prizes that were gathered by me over the years of working on the series. Forgive me that it's taking a minute for me to figure out how to get these prizes to you when you write in to the show at mymrsmezopod at gmail.com. Always include your full name and address so that I can get a prize to you should you, in fact, be a winner. Well, you're already a winner, and I thank you very, very much for writing to the show. Attention, New York Tri-State area fans of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel and my Mrs. Maisel pod. I am very excited to share with you that we are doing a couple of live onstage dates, myself and some castmates. We'll rewatch an episode with the audience, and then I'll chat with my castmates about the episode. We'll take your questions. They'll be answering those as well as mine. We're going to have a couple of special treats I won't discuss at this point, but the shows are July 26th at the Gramercy Theater in New York City. July 26th, and then the next night, July 27th, is at the Paramount Theater in Huntington. I believe that's in the Long Island area. So yeah, follow me on Instagram, Kevin Pollock123, for more details. There'll be pre-sales, codes, and things. I'm so excited for these shows, and there will be more to come. These are the first two. Yeah. All right, that's it for this episode. Thank you all. So very, very much. And please remember to watch all the episodes of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime. So uh, season one, episode seven for the next episode of this podcast. And uh, yeah, tell everyone you've ever met, please. Greatly appreciate it. Rate, review. We need your help. Post us on all your various socials. Tell everyone to check out the podcast on all the various platforms, including, of course, Amazon Music. I mean, they could just say, Alexa, play my Mrs. Maisel pod on Amazon Music, and then it would. Or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, however you're getting the podcasts. Inform, help, support. Greatly appreciate it. This is your host, Kevin Pollock, saying thank you. I'll see you in my dreams. And until then, please be kind to each other. Okay, closing credits time. My Mrs. Maisel pod was created by me, your host, Kevin Pollack, research writer, producer, Jamie Fox, and our engineer, recording, post-production producer genius is Ken Plume. My Mrs. Maisel pod is brought to you by the fine folks at Q-Code. Q-Code. Sounds like something, doesn't it? Oh, lastly, you should know... I'm told by legal to make this crystal clear that my Mrs. Maisel pod was not sanctioned in any way, shape, or form by Amazon Prime, nor the show's creators, Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, although I feel the need to mention I did get their blessing. Okay, good. That should save me some legal fees. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. 
This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalley. And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. 